Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi everyone and welcome to the Squiggly Careers podcast. This is one of our special guest episodes, so you've got Sarah here but no Helen this week. And today I'm delighted to be interviewing Dr. Margaret Heffernan, who is the author of a brilliant book called Uncharted: How to Map the Future Together. And I say brilliant book, really it's brilliant books, plural. She's actually the author of six books, an amazing array of different articles that she's written for the FT, and prior to that worked at the BBC for 13 years, a serial CEO. And her TED Talks, which is how I actually first came across Margaret and her work, have now been watched in total by 11 million people. So I feel very privileged and proud to be spending today chatting to Margaret. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love your concept of squiggly careers since I've had one. So it's a real pleasure to be talking with you. And I have to say when Margaret and I first kind of set up this conversation we were in a slightly different world and it's not often I say the date at the start of a podcast recording but it is the 24th of March we are in the midst of all things coronavirus and everybody dealing with that and if anything I think the book that Margaret has written and kind of the concepts that she explores feel more relevant and topical today than they have ever done before so it'll be really interesting I think to kind of delve into this idea of how we think about the future how we do scenario plannings what we do when crisis or just unpredictable moments happen Talking about squiggly careers, the book actually opens um, by talking about this difference between a complicated world and a complex world. So, Margaret, perhaps you could just start by sharing with us what the difference between those two things are, and kind of why you think it's important to be distinctive about the difference. So, you know, for a long time, I used to think complex was just a terribly pretentious way of talking <laughs> about things that are very complicated. And then I thought, well, actually, let me dig into this a bit more deeply, and started reading a lot around complexity theory and what complexity really is. And I realized that, as I'd suspected, I was wrong, and I had a lot to learn. And I guess what I see now is that most things in life you can divide into complicated or complex. And one way I think about this is, for example, if you were going to go catch a plane. Certain parts of that process are complicated, and certain are complex. So, checking your bags is complicated. There are lots of different pieces to it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there are often quite a lot of different companies involved in it. So the baggage handling may be done by one company. The check-in may be done by another company. The airport is another company. The airline is another company. So it is. it has a lot of pieces to it, but it is the same every time. My bag has the same treatment as your bag. And this happens to millions of bags every day in the same way all the time. It doesn't mean things don't go wrong, but it means overall very few things go wrong. But it is a predictable, repetitive process. And things that are complex are very subject to efficiency and to planning. Once you're in the plane and you're in the air, now you're in a complex environment. What that means essentially is there may be patterns so that, you know, we know certain weather conditions have a certain impact on flying. So there may be patterns, but they may not be predictable. It means very small things can have a huge impact. So the plane running into a goose, for example, could have a very major impact. And it means that expertise isn't always enough because the situation can change so quickly. Mm-hmm. So the consequence of that is that in a complex environment, you don't want to be too efficient because you cannot possibly foresee all the things that could happen. And as a result, when airplanes are designed, they are designed with more engines than they need that run on multiple operating systems. Now, from an efficiency point of view, that's stupid, but from a robust point of view, it's really safe. It means if there's a bug in the operating system, it isn't going to take out all the engines. It means if there's a flaw in one of the engines, it means it's not going to take out all of the plane. So the important thing is that in a complicated environment, you can be really efficient and you can plan minutely. And in a complex environment, it's really important to understand that planning will only get you so far that the unpredictable can happen and that therefore your aim is to have a robust system in place, not to be so efficient that you've eroded all your margins for the unexpected. And it almost reminded me of, uh, you know, when we talk about this idea of squiggly careers, I was thinking, actually, I wonder if you know, almost the old world of careers, I think we would describe them as being more complicated, but they were more linear, predictable. You could have a plan, essentially. Certainly, even when I started my career, you could kind of go, oh, I can see the hierarchy. It's command and control. It's quite mechanistic. You do just want to be as efficient as possible. If you were trying to get to the top of the ladder, how can I do that in an efficient way as possible? Whereas now, I guess our argument would be we're in a complex environment where if you only had one career plan, actually, that would be a bad approach. You're much better off having possibilities, experimenting, having scenarios, because that's more reflective, we think, of generally the world that everybody's operating in. But I can't work out whether I just had that bias, because obviously that's the world that I live in. (laughs) No, I think that's exactly right. And it's a really good application of the distinction. And it's interesting, because I remember when I moved to the States in the 90s, I moved to Boston and I had, there were two people there I knew. And one of them was a guy who was married to a very old friend of mine who had gone to Harvard College, Harvard Business School. He had joined a large corporation in financial services. And so he looked like he was on the perfect straight line career. And I moved to Boston with no plan and no job and ended up working as an entrepreneur in the tech sector. 
And after a couple of years, what happened to him was because the banking industry was going through a huge period of consolidation, he kept getting a job and then the bank being sold. And then after the merger had taken place, he kept being laid off. And so he said, you know, how come it is that you who've come here and know nobody are always working, you're always employed, you're always busy. And I, who am doing job searches every 18 months. And I think he thought he was in a complicated world, but actually he was in a complex world. And he was one of these people who cultivated the people he needed to know, which meant that when the kind of value of people changed, his network was useless because he'd been so tactical about his networking, which I think, you know, anyway, is kind of poor. But because he'd been so tactical, he didn't have a network of people who actually just liked him. He only had a single professional network of people who helped each other when it was in each other's best interests. So I think this complicated versus complex applies absolutely to your idea of squiggly careers. And squiggly careers need very robust networks which are full of people that you value for themselves and you're interested in them because they're interesting and the people in them like you because you're interesting. And it'll be a really robust network if all of you are more inclined to be generous than to be tactical. And the the thing that really struck me as I was reading the book and I mentioned to Margaret, I kind of read it, then coronavirus happened. So I reread it and thought, right, what does this change? What does this mean? But actually the core aspect of the book that really struck me was this idea of experiments and experimenting. And I really liked the quote, experiments are what you do when you don't know what you can do. It's just a brilliant, pithy articulation of what an experiment is. And I'd be really interested to get your point of view on why are they so useful in this complex environment we've just described? What is it about experiments that kind of help us to kind of, whether it's do things differently or navigate our way through the complexity, I guess? So I think that the reason experiments are so important is because, you know, as you write about so well, the world of work is changing all the time. And you may well have started in an industry that is now shrinking enormously and you want to get out before it's shrunk to nothing. And you may not know, well, what else do I want to do? And you can do all sorts of things, but I think what you can't do is you can't get an answer to that question by sitting at home and thinking about it. In the end, the only way you're really going to know is to find those environments and try them out. I mean, I think I was quite lucky when I started my career because I did, and a lot of it was easily available at the time. I just did lots and lots of temp jobs until I found Mm -hmm. environments in which I was happy. So I got to try out lawyers' offices and banks and educational institutions and all sorts of places before I discovered that I really loved, you know, working in the BBC. You know, so all the temp jobs really were experiments. And I think when you're, you know, either when you're starting in your career, you're thinking, actually, I really need to move now because this industry either isn't what I thought it was or... It isn't what it was to begin with, or I'm just sick of it and I need to change. The really important thing is to obviously think about, well, what are the values I have? What are the kinds of environments and people that I really like? But then you have to try it. Yeah, I love that idea. I think there is one company in the US that you might be familiar with, but I remember uh, Zappos. 
And I, they don't quite do what you described, but they get close in that they essentially, I think you have something like three months period. And at that point, you can decide or the company can decide where you just say, this has just not been a good fit for me. Culturally, it just doesn't work. And at that moment, the thing that I thought was brilliant about what Zappos had done is they will pay you to leave. They don't want people to stay essentially for the wrong reasons. And if it's not the right environment, I can see how that could actually work really well for people in terms of encouraging people to experiment and explore more because often it's those kind of factors that hold people back or get people procrastinating. I mean, it's a little bit like a no-blame divorce. You can't really know until you get your feet under the table. And at that point, you know, you don't know enough to know that you want to commit. But at the moment you do commit, it's really, really understanding what you're doing. And I'm very struck, you know, I know lots of people, you know, I think in the book I write about, you know, my niece who started in PR and now is a family lawyer. I have a nephew who started in law and now is works in sports marketing. I mean, I think these squiggly careers are inevitable. I think they're much more common, but I also think that it's not just about where you're starting. You know, if I look at my own career, I got to a very senior position in television. I regularly was the only woman in the room at meetings. And I just thought, you know, wow, I'm in my early thirties. I could have to hang around here for 20 years. And there are just lots of other things I'd like to try. Wow, I don't want this to be the only thing I've ever done in my life. That's when I started moving into tech. Well, let's see what this is like. And do you find that, I was quite struck by, there's a really wide variety of stories in the book, which I really enjoyed from people in loads of different types of industries and roles. Do the people who are successful at kind of driving experimentation, and I'm thinking now about, you know, people who are listening, who are perhaps thinking, okay, well, I'm in a position and I'm kind of motivated to you know, make more experimentation happen in my organisation. What characteristics do you observe in those different people? Because it struck me that there were some things in common, though they had very different roles in very different organisations. There seemed to be a few consistent themes about kind of what it took as an individual to make experimentation happen. I think it's partly they're curious. Mm -hmm. They want to know, is there a better way to do something? I think they're reasonably humble, which is to say they know that they don't know everything. I think they have a certain amount of courage, which is they're prepared to be wrong and don't feel that you know their ego will be destroyed if the hypothesis of their experiment isn't proved. And I think they feel that they would rather try something and see what happens than just preserve the status quo. I think also... They have what I would, I would have to call an artist's imagination. They survey and scan the world very broadly. They have minds like street sweepers, and they're just sweeping up these impressions and observations and information and sifting through it to say, kind of, what does this mean? What's happening? Is this different? Does it mean something or is it not, you know, does it mean nothing? And they do that as a habit of mind. It's just the way they experience life. And so their entrepreneurs are very often like this. I think artists absolutely are like this. So they're not looking for something, they're just looking. And they're thinking about what they see 
And then, then thinking about how does that relate to what I'm doing? And does it mean I need to think differently about what I'm doing or how I'm doing it or whatever? And I think these people have some kind of native foresight that people who are very planning oriented, focused and efficient lose. One of the things that really struck me as um, you talk generally about the kind of human skills that we all need to retain and protect and build and not forget about if we want to have kind of resilience and strength is that there is so much, I think, pressure on people to be productive and that has a certain implication in terms of how you spend your time that then actually maybe people who are daydreamers or people who are good at looking at things that are kind of happening on the periphery. Or the example that actually also really struck me was this idea of people who prioritise friendship. Actually, those things are often not valued in an organisation. You know, you were talking to lots of kind of CEOs who've been through crisis scenarios. So, you know, very difficult times, you know, and so many of them actually pointed to friendship as being something that actually helped them to kind of stay resilient and have strength and yet when you talk to people who are uh, in organizations today the kind of perspective is there's no place for that or no time for that so i think this is really important i'm very struck that people often ask me is it okay to have friends at work i mean i think one of the things we're learning right now is how social work is many of the people i know are lonely working from home. Yeah. They miss their colleagues. They miss hanging out and the chit chat. And it isn't even necessarily that all these people are there are very, very close friends, but being together, working together towards some kind of common thing is a profoundly social human activity. And I think as we have made the workplace more efficient, much of that has fallen by the wayside or people don't have time for it or their bosses regard it as wasteful. And I think this is really nothing short of catastrophic because I think when the chips are down, and I've seen this in many companies, including my own, what keeps people motivated, what keeps people working, what keeps people trying stuff and trying stuff and trying stuff until they find something that works is primarily each other. It absolutely is not money. It absolutely is not the company, and it's very rarely just the CEO. People stick together for each other. And to the degree that we manage with minute efficiency all the time to make those relationships at work out of the schedule, I think we create companies of immense flimsiness that mean nothing to the people working in them and nothing to the world at large. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Do you find that when you see the organizations that you feel are resilient kind of broadly and the people, probably the individuals and also the organizations that are able to recover or kind of bounce back, that they've kind of had those friendships over long periods of time. And you talk about building lots of alliances, but where you don't necessarily know how they'll be useful, which again, I think goes back to that point about often we are so kind of challenging of ourselves now to think, how is this very useful in a very kind of almost overly practical kind of efficient way? A bit like the example of the guy that we were talking about at the start of the conversation. It then means that you're kind of missing opportunities and you don't know when those alliances could end up being helpful. They might not, but it's sort of this idea of everything doesn't need to be done in such a purposeful way. Because if you do that, it almost feels overly reductive, I think was kind of where I was getting to with kind of the different things you were talking about. You know, if you accept one of the major arguments in my book, which is there is a vast amount in life that is utterly unpredictable, then if you tailor every single thing you do and every relationship you do towards what you know you'll need, then you are very poorly supplied for the unexpected. Mm. And I think we have to become, if you like, more generous and less efficient and start recognizing that whether it's a good life or a good business, both need more excellent relationships than you can imagine, more excellent alliances than you can imagine. You know, I know many, many companies that going through crises, for example, after 9-11, were kept going by their customers because their customers loved them. Or, you know, their suppliers gave them an extra line of credit because they loved working with them because they hadn't been treated as just tools or widgets. They really had proper human relationships. When you have none of those, when everything you have is fundamentally a transaction, then when the chips are down, why should anybody help you? And I think we've really felt that over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we're a business where, you know, the majority certainly of our work is seeing people kind of in real life and, um, you know, whether that's delivering training or learning in, in kind of some capacity. And actually, I've been really struck by 
because we tend to work with people over a very kind of long period of time and I almost see lots of our kind of clients as friends, those people have been so thoughtful and we've had people sending us kind of emails and notes sort of going, this must be incredibly hard for kind of what you do or you must have, you, you know, this must be an awful lot of change that you could never have predicted. And that's where I'm so glad that we'd always gone with that approach of do you know what just go with what you can give and don't kind of worry too much about what you're going to gain and you don't do it with the expectation of you don't want things like at the moment to happen certainly we don't to our kind of business but it does mean that you you have a sense of community around you and it gives you confidence I think it gives you confidence that you can see your way through it that you are bigger than just the people inside your organization and I think I've been very struck I mean as I guess you have too you know, the number of companies who've reached out to me and said, well, I guess you're not doing a lot of speaking engagements anymore, which obviously is right. You know, could we do some virtual stuff together? We can't pay you, but, you know, would it be helpful? You know, and these have mostly come from organizations that actually I've been working with on and off for years now. And if I can help them and they can help me, that's fantastic. And if I can't, you know, it's okay. I still want to if I can. I think this is about not keeping score. You know, the organizations where they give me a fee, I do a piece of work and we never see each other again. There is no relationship there. It is a transaction. And I expect that all lives are a mixture of the two. But I think the lives and careers that are only transactions are dreary and sterile and actually very perilous. And I'm interested in one of the actually things you talk about towards the start of the book, but um, I came back to a few times and interesting to get your perspective given today's context is this idea of optimism. And an optimist is usually somebody who doesn't ignore problems. They actually accept them or acknowledge them. They kind of don't give up easily. So optimism is not about, I think, almost sort of general being happy all the time, which I think sometimes people get, get a bit confused with that. It's much more about a kind of sense of, I can see those problems, I can spot them, and I'm I'm going to kind of take ownership. And you described, um, this is the first time I've come across this, almost these two types of optimism. The one which is called explainers, and I think if I've understood it right, explainers are people who realise that challenges are temporary. So they know that... Um, what we're experiencing, let's hope, right now is not a kind of permanent state and they can almost understand that as kind of part of a context. And then the second type was expectant and that's people who almost, even within a kind of challenging scenario, they see opportunities for improvement and almost have that grittiness, I guess, some kind of fighting spirit. Is that a good way to explain them? I think that's absolutely right. You know, optimists get bothered a lot, but they know that bad things don't last forever, that there are other things that can be done, that some things can be improved. And of course, it's important to say also, they're not always right about everything. Mm -hmm. Their optimistic orientation allows them to see more opportunities for better things than people who've just decided, well, you know, we're all doomed. And I'm interested to know how optimistic you're feeling. So having written the book and spent time with so many different types of organisations, different types of people, and then given where we all are today and the, you know, we talk about most of us have never experienced the level of complexity and uncertainty and ambiguity that kind of is in my life right now. So the kind of the amount of unknowns is kind of at a new all-time high. 
And I'm, I'm interested to know like, how optimistic do you feel about our kind of ability collectively, I guess, to recover and find our way through this? Well, I guess I feel if we're smart and we want it enough, I think we could come out of this crisis very much stronger. I think that one of the characteristics of the pandemic is that it is happening to everyone, Mm. that even the super rich can't buy their way out of it, that it absolutely is something we all have in common, whether we like it or not. We will have different experiences of it. I'm sure the super rich are having a lot more fun, but it is a great equalizer. And I hope it serves to remind people that we are all interdependent, that actually we wouldn't eat it if it weren't for the supermarkets and farmers and distribution systems and all of that kind of thing, that we are totally dependent upon each other and that therefore we have to look after each other and that the function of government is to ensure that everyone is looked after, you know, both through market mechanisms and through state mechanisms. And if we can finally get away from what I think of as peak individualism, where it would basically each man or woman for herself and recognize that actually in one world on one planet, we have to work together, then I think magnificent things could happen specifically with regard to climate change, which is the crisis that will not go away of its own accord or even through self-isolation. If, on the other hand, we come out of this crisis pretty much the way we came out of the banking crisis and with our mindset only on let's get back to the normal, which was the past, A, we will have wasted a good crisis, and B, we will be in a much worse position because we're losing time right now on climate change and we don't have a lot of time to waste. So if we learn the lesson of collective experience, I think this could be a huge turning point for the world at large. And if we fail to learn the lesson, the climate change fight is going to be much, much harder. I'm very much hoping for option one of those two. Sounds like a world that I would much rather be part of and live in. And I think it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because as we talked about with, you know, echo chambers and spending time with people a bit like yourself, certainly the individuals and the organisations that we work with all very much kind of reflect that ethos of I think people have moved to more of a sense of kindness and generosity and realizing that they're kind of more important things than kind of ourselves and how we can all play our kind of respective roles in in those things and for all of our um everybody kind of listening right now we always ask uh each of our guests at the very end of our interviews to share their best piece of career advice. So this could be some advice that you've been given by someone that's really stuck with you throughout your career, or it could just be the advice that you think you'd like to kind of pass on your kind of words of wisdom to people listening. So I think the very best piece of advice I've ever been given, and it must be a good piece of advice because I remember it after over 20 years, is just because you're good at something doesn't mean you have to do it. I was given this piece of advice when I was running tech companies and I was really getting to the point of thinking I don't know how much longer I can do this and everybody kept saying but Margaret you're so good at it and just and that one sentence kind of set me free 
And I think there are many people, I mean, I've met many people who sort of feel, but, you know, I'm good at this, so that's all I can do. And I would say, if you're good at one thing, you're probably good at something else. And if you're good at something, but you don't enjoy it, find something else. So if you've been listening today and you would like to um, kind of learn, read, watch, listen to more about Margaret and her work, like I say, she's very easy to find on TED. She's got loads of, I think there's like three or four TED Talks on there at least now. The one that is particularly relevant to the conversation that we've had today is called The Human Skills We Need in an Unpredictable World, which I've, I rewatched again this morning and is a really kind of useful pricey, particularly of some of kind of the actual skill sets around friendship and bravery some of the things that we've talked about the book is called uncharted how to map the future together and that's one of margaret's many books the other one that i've read is actually called willful blindness which is also a brilliant read and actually one of the other things that uh, margaret does which i found very useful when i was researching for our conversation today is lots of your previous ft articles you can download from your website i discovered But Margaret, thank you so much in the midst of everything that is going on right now. It would have been really easy not to have this conversation today, but I'm so grateful to you because I've learned loads by kind of immersing myself in kind of your world. It's been, I think I feel like a better person having got to know more about the work that you've done and more able to do a good job in kind of what I do and with the people I work in. So I really appreciate you sharing your insights with our listeners today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've loved the conversation, Sarah, and I wish you well and all the squiggly careers well. (laughs) Thank you so much. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.